House Barheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this honor of gathering together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for giving us said faith, for it is that faith that is the linchpin to all of this, Father. Thank you for giving us the gospel and thank you for giving us the opportunity to spread it, to spread your grace, your mercy, and your love as part of the Great Commission. Father, thank you so much. We pray especially for those in this inclement weather that are suffering, Father, that those that are part of this congregation even that can't be here with us, that they know that we're with them in spirit and prayer. Father, we pray for those still struggling even with their saving faith that you humble them, whatever that means, Father, whatever that means, and that we might be given the opportunity, your will be done, of course, to evangelize them. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make a morning like this even a reality. We just pray on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, uh, what is good and who gets to define it? Fantastic series coming to a close here. Um, let's begin with a passage of Holy Scripture that came out on Tuesday evening. Uh, hopefully, before, before I go into that, um, hopefully everybody got that email from Moniker on the blog. and It was an extra long blog, so it was well-placed. And hopefully every, everybody got to read that in lieu of the cancellation due to the snow and what have you. Go to Luke 6.27. Luke 6.27. If you didn't read it, I don't know what to tell you at this point. You're lazy. And that's why you're suffering. And that's why you're miserable. Luke 6... Happy Sunday. Luke 6.27. <laughs> what are you supposed to say? At this, at this stage of the game... In this family of believers, what am I supposed to say, honestly? If you didn't read the blog, I mean, come on. You get the night off, you get a blog that takes, what, 10, 15 minutes to read, and you didn't read it? That's gross. Luke 6, 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give. That's going to be a theme this morning. Give. We want to know what's good. You want to know what's good? Right there. Give. That's what's good. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want to treat them to treat you. There's the golden rule. Confucius didn't come up with the golden rule, neither did Grandma. It's in the Bible. Like any true wisdom pearl, it's from the Bible. Luke 6.31, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? 
Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You see that? You have to sow something. That's the other theme before we close this morning. You know, a farmer, a good farmer, sows. And it's hard work sometimes. It's not always easy to love, especially your enemies. Amen? It's work. It's amongst the hardest work we can possibly do in this life. I bet you <coughs> most people <coughs> would rather till an actual field for 10 hours straight in the steaming sun than love their enemies and do good. So, But that's what Scripture says, and those are red letters, right? Yeah. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. In other words, don't do it out of false motivation. Well, if I do this, then I get that. That's false motivation. That's what Jesus is saying. Check yourself. Make sure you're not doing it to get anything in return. This isn't about, you know, monies. This is about actual human nature. Because most people give with ties. They'll say, oh, no, this, don't worry about it. And then, you know, like six months later, remember that time I gave you? You know, I scratch your back. No, that's what he's saying. Avoid that from the get-go. If you're going to give, give with true motivation. Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. And we're going to get to that as well. Look at what it takes to find mercy. What does it take to find mercy? I think I wrote a blog on this. You actually have to be merciful. So in other words, to receive something, you have to give it. Same thing with judging and pardoning and all that stuff. What does he say in, in Luke 6.38? Give, and it will be given to you. Do you see the order? Give, and it will be given to you. There's not even a subject. That means that's the formula, right? Give, and it will be given to you. What? Whatever. Whatever is godly. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It means when you give, you get more in return even. An abundance. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return up here on the board. So let's get started here. Give and it will be given to you. That is so much of these final um, lessons on um, what is good. This is where the Spirit has been taking us. Give and it will be given to you. This is the ultimate paradigm shift. And I don't mean to sound corporate on you, but this is the ultimate paradigm shift. While utterly incomprehensible to worldly wisdom, it is the very foundation of true Christianity. What we keep, we lose. What we give, we have. That's incomprehensible to a worldly person. A person that's from the world says, keep gathering unto yourself so that you have more, right? That's what the world tells us. Store up treasures, this whole nine yards, don't ever give. And if you give, always have a string attached so that you can somehow 
get back what you gave, that kind of motivation. But the Lord said, give and it will be given to you. This is the ultimate paradigm shift. While utterly incomprehensible to worldly wisdom, it is the very foundation of true Christianity. What we keep, we lose. What we give, we have. And just so you know, the context of Luke 6.38 is important here. And it's in keeping with this week's blog, which was titled, How to Prepare Farmland for Planting. To understand the fullness of this illustration, we must first understand the context, as always. So Jesus was speaking to individuals who would have been well-versed in agricultural uh, sort of um, examples or illustrations. So we have to understand the fullness of the context. Jesus was borrowing from a visual that his audience would have completely understood. Let me show you what he was using up here on the board. I hope you can see that. That's a man sowing seed, and you can see he has sort of a, an apron around girded around him and it would be filled with seed and the person would sow this way so seed was held in the garment for sowing and it's this principle of reaping what you sow that is being taught in Luke 6:38 but do you see what is he doing is he sitting on the couch no i'm serious i'm, I'm this is the visual that Jesus used not pastor ed he's actually on his feet doing something you, it, I don't see any rain, so it's probably hot. Who knows? Who knows what's going on? But this would have been the illustration that his audience would have fully understood because agriculture was so prominent during that time. And so there's this idea of having seed and sowing it in the field. So think about it. No successful farmer in the history of mankind has ever found their success by being lazy. No successful farmer in the history of mankind has ever found their success by being lazy. And I use that's the same word I used about people who refuse to read the blog, isn't it? Same thing. In fact, farmers are known to be among the hardest working people on the planet. The first principle then for us is one that has been coming from this ministry through its various channels, the pulpit, the blog, even men's conferences, etc., for years now. And it's something that Paul wrote about quite plainly. Go to 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians 3.10. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Second Thessalonians three, verse ten. I mean, this was pretty plainly stated. Verse ten: For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order: If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Any questions? And that's not a person who's unable. You notice the key word there is willing. And don't say, well, I'm willing, but, you know, and you're lazy. No, that's not willingness. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Charity comes in on the back end of that. Obviously, I shouldn't have to teach this, but you should know this, right? Charity, a person who's unable to work because of injury or something like that, that's where charity comes in. Well, they're unable to work, so let's help them when they need help. 
That's not socialism. That's called charity. It's not enforced giving. It's charitable giving. That's biblical. Socialism, evil. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Again, keep the visual in mind up on the board there. What does that mean? What does that mean? Think about the work of sowing, seed. The successful, or to be a successful sower of seed, you must be willing to give. To be a successful sower of seed, you must be willing to give. What is that person doing? They're giving their energy. They're giving their time. They're giving their attention. They're giving their skill set. They're giving themselves. They, they are, right? They're not anywhere. They didn't get transported. They're not living some duality, right? There they are in the field. It's probably not the most comfortable thing. He's got sandals on. Most people that work on farms now have boots that come up to their knees almost. Why? So they don't just scrape their, tear up their feet. You know, Red Wing didn't exist back in the day. Seriously. Life was a lot tougher. I, I, would, I wonder about that a lot. Like, what would the average American do if they were instantaneously transported even 200 years, not even 2,000, 200 years ago in time? I wonder, I wonder how long and how much complaining they would be. Working, you know, 16-hour days as the norm. Most people are like, that's up. Eight hours. Tum, tum. Tum, tum. Arrive a little late, leave a little early. That kind of an attitude, that's not a good attitude. To be a successful sower of seed, you must be willing to give. And the type of giving that the Bible talks profusely about is sacrificial. Sacrificial. So I encourage you to hang on that word, sacrificial. Why? Because most of us, let's face it, most of us have very little real experience with the concept. Everybody in here has more than they need. That's a fact. Everybody in here has more than they need. I'm not saying want. Remember, there's that problem. Oh, but I need... No, you don't need that. You don't need it until you get rid of the 300 cable stations that you pay for every month. You don't have any real needs. You have wants, and because you've satisfied your wants before your needs, now you have needs. You get it? That's called irresponsibility. Or stupidity. You can choose. Most of us have very little real experience with the concept of sacrificial giving, though our fleshes might beg to differ. The average American thinks giving up couch time in front of the TV to counsel their kids or share the word of God with a friend is some tremendous feat. But it is not. It is not. Remember, we are slaves to our master, capital M. We are slaves to our master who has called us to, guess what? Love like he did. What do you think I'm doing right now? Do you think this is easy? You know. Before the end of the service, I know there's going to be half of you like this. Or like this. 
More like this. We are slaves. Just remember that. And please remember this. And listen up. The dutiful slave. We are not to pat ourselves on the back for doing what we're supposed to be doing. Seriously, we're going to pat ourselves on the back for doing what we're supposed to be doing? The Bible says we're not supposed to pat, on, pat ourselves on the back. What did Paul just say? If you're not willing to work, then you shouldn't eat. Well, I worked. Good for you. You're supposed to work. You're supposed to work. It doesn't mean just make money, you know, family structure. It doesn't matter. Whatever you've worked out, whatever the Lord has revealed to you to do, do it. Go to Luke 17, 7. That is the point. Do everything as unto the Lord, right? Isn't that scripture? Yeah. The Lord says, and the Holy Spirit's convicted you to do a certain something, then do it to the best of your ability. Because you know what? There's the concept of first fruit. Not when you're weary and tired. Don't put it off. Don't procrastinate the things that God wants you to do. Don't put them behind in priority, behind, I don't know, reruns of your favorite sitcom. And then complain you don't have enough time to read a blog. That's premeditated ridiculousness. That's not first fruit. That's last fruit. That's the point. Don't crawl into church if you're not hungover for once. Do you realize? You know what I'm getting at? Why do you get so quiet? Something I need to know? Luke 17, 7. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, after you finish your chores, after you finish your priorities, I'm the master here, right? Afterward, you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, Say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Do you understand? Not a, this isn't everybody gets a trophy thing. That's the, that's the line. You're supposed to do the things you're commanded from your master. You're supposed to do these things. That's what it means to love. That's what true love looks like. It wants to do things. For others. Again, the dutiful slave, we are not to pat ourselves on the back for doing what we are supposed to be doing. Remember the point the Spirit's making here is simple. We are slaves to our Master who has called us to love like He did. To love like He did. He even said, love your enemies. Okay, let's go back to the instigating verse. Go to Luke 6.38. That's where we started. Luke 6.38. Luke 6.38. This was the instigating passage. Jesus said, Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, 
and running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Again, the point on the board up here. Give and it will be given to you. This is an, the ultimate paradigm shift. It's complete flip. While utterly incomprehensible to worldly wisdom, it is the very foundation of true Christianity. Here's the, this is the paradox, if you want to call it that. What we keep, we lose. What we give, we have. That's the paradox. The most profound example is love. When we give it, we have it. Let me, let me do the best I can with this, because this is somewhat difficult to teach. Again, keep this in mind. What we keep, we lose. What we give, we have. And again, the most profound example is love. When we give it, we have it. For starters, God has proven this to us, hasn't he? We love because he first loved us. God's love is so perfect and pure that it cannot help but express itself. It cannot, it's so perfect and so pure that he just gives it. And because he gives it, he experiences it all the time. It's one and the same, if you would. You, you can't lay claim to something that can't help but give if you never give. That makes sense. So God's love is so perfect and pure that it cannot help but express itself. And not only that, but as is the principle being taught to us this morning, to give love is to have it. Do you want to experience love? Who doesn't? I mean, isn't that what everybody says? The world says if you want to experience love, go find, go be a selfish lover and go get somebody to give you what you want. And that's you getting love, right? That's you being loved. If you want to understand godly love, you have to give it. You see? It's completely backwards from the world. The world says, go be a selfish lover. Go find some hot dude or hot gal who gives you what you want, who when they sag out, you get rid of anyways. Go, get the, go be the complete selfish lover. Go get exactly what you want. Get it for you, and when it dies off, just kick it to the curb. Go get another lover. That's all counterfeit. If you want to understand what true love is, you give it. Because that's God's love, isn't it? In other words, God doesn't need your love to understand love, does he? Because the Bible says God is love. He wants you to love him, but that's for your benefit. To give love is to have it. To keep it is to lose it. In other words, to keep it to yourself. To never, I'm not going to say risk it, but for lack of a better term, to never risk loving someone the way Christ loved is to lose it. You'll never experience God's love that way. You'll know that He loves you, I hope. In other words, to leave love on the vine and not pick it and share it is to watch it die on the vine. To leave love on the vine is to watch it die on the vine. And nobody gets to enjoy the fruit. Up here on the board, what the Spirit's saying really is simple. 
We must give love in order to, that we might, quote, have it, possess it fully. Lombano, maybe? Possess it? But we've got to give it to have it. That's what the Bible says. doesn't make any sense to the flesh, does it? Because the flesh is an inherently selfish lover. The new creature is a godly lover. And so the selfish lover always looks for people to use and manipulate. They go find people that are just like them who are selfish lovers themselves, and then they make this contract. Well, you love me so I can be selfish. Give me what I want, and that'll show me love, and I'll give you what you want, and that'll show you love. That's why everybody's playing games out there, right, with each other, and then calling it love, and it's just selfish love. That's why marriages never last nowadays, and if people even get married, they don't understand it. It's just complete mayhem. Why? Because people are selfish lovers. That's why. We have to give and we have to love like Christ loves to actually understand, to actually have it. That's what the Spirit's saying. So I hope the visual is clear. Again, back to the sowing example. It's not just a romantic thing. That's the one everybody seems to relate to. We're talking about love. Love that transcends any romance. We're talking about love that just gives the way Christ did. A farmer who sows bountifully will reap bountifully, and vice versa. Go to 2 Corinthians 9, 6. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. A farmer who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And think of our example, that visual. A person who spends long hours in the field sowing reaps the harvest. A person who goes out there and throws a couple of seeds off their porch and then goes and lays down on the couch isn't going to reap much. And here's the point. This is the whole killer. You say, well, big deal. It's other people's souls that are in view. No, it's yours. It's yours. It's more blessed to give. That's the whole point. Jesus said that, right? And who's going to argue that he understood less love than we do? Less about love? Who loved more than him? Nobody. Who gave more than him? Nobody. Do you see the connection? Maybe, just maybe, he was on to something. And you know what? He was never romantic. He never got married. Put that into perspective. What does that say about the greatest love? The greatest love isn't a romance love, my friends. I've taught this before in the past. It's been a while, but I've taught that in the past. The world will tell you the greatest love is romance, right? It'll lie to you. Say, this is what you must have. You must have this romance because this is the greatest love you can possibly have. Oh, and by the way, just to prove it to yourself, go have illicit sex. And call that love, too, because you'll have this big emotional upheaval. Call that love, too. But that's all a lie. That's all a lie. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Any questions? Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
He doesn't want you to do this stuff for the wrong motivation, in other words. He wants you to understand His love so you can experience it, even in time. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. In other words, you're never going to run out. You know, it's not like the, the, the farmer example where eventually he's going to run out of seed, right? This, this is boundless. You just keep, you know, it's like the, the loaves, right? It just keeps coming. You just keep sowing. As much as you want to sow, is there. He's never going to fail you when it comes to grace. And it's funny because the paradigm is that it's not what you think. Most people think of God's blessing as He gives more to you to keep, Right? No, He gives more to you to give. You follow? He's not giving you a big farmhouse behind you. You don't get to turn around and go, I sowed for 20 hours. Whoa, my house got bigger. No. He's saying, I'm going to give you a bigger apron. And as much seeds as you can sow, I'm going to give it to you. And the more you sow with good faith and good motivation, the more love you have. And that's something you can take with you to eternity. Not a big house. You understand? That's completely different than what a fleshly, selfish lover thinks. It's a complete, I just call it a paradigm shift. I don't know, a flip. The whole thing's backwards. He says, I'm going to give to you. I'm going to keep on giving to you. But what you're going to realize over time as you mature in the faith is the things that you chased as a child, the elementary, elementary things, you're going to realize very quickly, or at least eventually, they don't count. They don't mean anything. You're going to probably chalk up a lot of them as mistakes. I bet you some of them, as soon as I start talking about illicit sex, some of you are like, yep, been there, done that. What are you going to do? God says, I'm going to bless you out by giving to you so that you have the ability and the opportunity to give to others. First and foremost, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you time, energy. I'm going to give you resources even to contact other people to sow this seed. The one with my son's name on it. That one. It's funny. I was listening uh, first thing this morning. Not to digress, but I didn't, really, I didn't know this. Um, R.C. Spruill, some of you know who he is. Legionnaire Ministries, a good guy, a good guy that I would listen to once in a while. I don't listen to many people, but he's one I would listen to. R.C. Spruill, he died recently. And uh, I watched a, just a little 15-minute sermon on the gospel. And he said it straight up front. I, I, uh, I, almost, I almost cried. He said, you want to know what the God, and he's got the oxygen thing going. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? He's, he died like a month later. And uh, he said, the gospel is Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And I believe him. I, I agree with him. 100%. Gospel is not some weird prayer. It's not some facts about Jesus Christ. It's, it's him. He is the good news. So we have to hang on his words. If he says this, then listen to him. If he says that, then listen to him. It's about receiving a person. I mean, and when you receive him, then you can give him. 
to others. Isn't that what you see in verse 8? When does Jesus Christ ever stop giving in your life? Never. When is he not able to allow you to give himself to other people? Never. He just keeps on giving. Heck, his spirit fills your mouth when you don't think you're capable of actually saying the right thing. That's the gospel, my friends. It's him. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Remember what Jesus is called, fullness of grace and truth. So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. In other words, your, your apron is never going to run out of seed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Of your righteousness. You might even talk. I could probably do a couple of sermons on that. The harvest of your, the righteous man lives by faith. You want more faith? Sow more seed. Watch what he does in your life. He's not lying. See, that's the problem. Most people are too gun shy. They're, they're, they're too stuck in their flesh. The one that's a selfish lover. I can't give any more of myself. There'll be less for me to enjoy. You missed the whole point. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Do you see that? Verse 8 through 11 is, is unbelievable. Just completely impregnated with what the Spirit's been saying from this ministry for two years now. Two years. You'll be enriched in everything. You'll never run out. And because of that, God keeps giving you the means to give to others. That's the blessing. Not what you receive. That's what the flesh will tell you. This, this is about love, folks. This is about giving love to others. Showing others Christ's love. And don't think it's, this weak, don't think it's just romantic. And don't think it's just mushy either. Because it's just as loving to give someone the hard truth about the sovereignty of God or their need, say, for repentance. That's just as much love as it is to be kind to someone in need. But it all requires giving, loving. The greatest seed we can ever sow is the gospel. This seed is the very expression of God's love. For God so loved the world, right? That He gave His only begotten Son. He didn't give us a prayer. He gave us His Son. That's why we call it the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because He gave us His Son. The Son is the solution to the problem. Not some prayer, not some facts about Him. It's actually Him. When we're saved, we're made, we're baptized spiritually into union with Christ. That's a supernatural fact. We don't get into union with facts about the man. We actually get into union with the man. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. I feel like just running off the stage right now. I'm going to explode. For real. Like, it's really hard to contain right now. When you think about about, um, salvation at this level... 
When you think about salvation this way, when it's really about Jesus Christ, I mean, come on. Heek. How do you not, exp- how, do you not how do you contain it? You cannot contain it. It's indescribable, right? Amen? Yeah. Some prayer for salvation, something you think you did when you were 10 years old, is not the gospel. The greatest seed we can ever sow is the gospel. This seed is the very expression of God's love, and therefore, when sown righteously, an expression of our own love. I mean, isn't it? What, what, what gets you guys out there to evangelize other people? Is it not love? I mean, you don't know these people, so what are you doing? You don't, you don't love them that way, right? You're not romantic with them. So what's motivating you? And if it's, if it's, well, oh, I've got to do this thing to prove my worth so I can work my way to heaven, that's no good. What's actually motivating you? That's why you should never go out under false pretenses. What's motivating you? Good motivation is love. John 3, 16, Ephesians 5, 25, 27, 1 John 4, 19. Again, if you want to possess love, then express it. If you want to possess love, then express it. Go to Ephesians 5.25. You all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Ephesians 5.25, go there. All of this, what's the topic of our series? What is good? Who gets to define it? Ephesians 5.25 We're not focusing on the husband-wife example here. Husbands, love your wives. How? This is the example. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's not a romantic thing. I know people like to make it romantic, but it's not a romantic thing. In that sense that we know romance. Is there a romance to it? A godly romance? I suppose, yeah. I mean, we're his bride. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's a far cry from... Today's marriage, even so-called Christian marriages, a far cry, if they even take it that far. That's a far cry from what most people consider marriage to be today, even marriages that are going on in the church. Again, the point of the board, loving. The greatest seed we can ever sow is the gospel. This Seed is the very expression of God's love, and therefore when sown righteously, an expression of our own love. Husbands, we're supposed to love our wives the way Christ loved his bride. Again, if you want to possess love, then express it. Go to 1 John 4.19. 1 John 4.19 If you want to possess love, I mean, who doesn't want to be loved? 
then express it. And you have to express it the way he's commanded you to express it. You are his slave after all. You don't get to express it selfishly or to satisfy someone else's selfish desires towards you under some ridiculous contract, you see? I'll give you what you want and you can think you receive love. You give me what I want, we'll call that love. That's not godly love. That's worldly love. That's why that kind of love never lasts. We love because he first loved us. Okay, so let's, let, let's knit this all together for the sake of finding exactly what the Spirit's getting at here this morning. All right, go back to Luke 6.38. Luke 6.38. It pretty much begins and ends with this verse. This is what the Spirit's saying at, and this is the culmination. We're going to finish up this series this morning. I mean, Scott probably do a review on it, but that's, that's the end of it. Luke 6.38. So we're, we're, we're sort of at the capstone of our series. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Again, the point on the board. Give, and it will be given to you. This is the ultimate paradigm shift. While utterly incomprehensible to worldly wisdom, it is the very foundation of true Christianity. And the principle being, what we keep, we lose. What we give, we have. That's what he's saying. You want to experience the greatest blessings I've got to give, that God has to give you? Then you have to give. Because that's how he gives, you see? And love has been sort of the centerpiece of the discussion. If you want to understand true love, then you actually have to show love. And so much so, just to qualify that love, Jesus Christ said, love your enemies. So you know it can't be a selfish love because your enemies do nothing but antagonize you. So that hacks off the idea of receiving love from other people, doesn't it? So there has to be something that Jesus was getting at, and that's exactly what he was getting at. If you want to experience my love, from a man who was never romantically involved ever, if you want to understand my love, then listen to what I'm telling you. If you want to understand true love, godly love, it has to be from you, not from somebody else. So you ladies out there, stop looking for some man to save you. Men, same thing. Stop looking for the answer in some woman. You're missing the entire point. You want to understand true love, then you have to give it. You say, well, what do I give? Well, that's why you're here this morning. We're talking about sacrificial giving. We're talking about laying down a life for somebody else. And we want to do it. We ask for opportunities. We pray for opportunities. Why? Because we know what Jesus was saying when he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. We've actually experienced it. So God says, I'm going to keep filling you up with more and more faith. Keep digging deeper into that apron. Keep sowing that seed. Keep living for others. And I'll show you what I mean. 
I'll show you what it means to have my love. Hmm. What we keep, we lose. What we give, we have. What the Spirit's telling us is something He was saying during Tuesday, last Tuesday's class as well. I'll net this out for you best I can. Again, up here on the board, love gives. The love that Christ revealed to His sheep through His life, His ministry and cross was sacrificial. He gave His perfect understanding, His forgiveness, His mercy, and His love to unworthy creatures. And do you think that for one moment He didn't experience love? For the joy set before Him? That He didn't understand that, give, that, that the reason why He was filled with love was because His entire life was based on giving? You think he didn't understand that? Of course he understood it. He experienced it in the purest way any man has ever experienced it on this earth. The love that Christ revealed to his sheep through his life, ministry, and cross was sacrificial. He gave his perfect understanding, his forgiveness, his mercy, and his love to unworthy creatures. Does that describe what he was saying in that border case of love your enemies? If anybody's you know, least worthy of your, quote, love, it's got to be your enemies, right? It's got to be them. Well, in the flesh, we were all enemies. And yet, for the sake of love, from the motivation of love, he went all the way to the cross and then hung there and died. Why? Love. And people were mocking him and spitting on him and making fun of him while he was nude on the cross. Some of you, that thing alone would be like, oh. Now, to bring this back to our primary course of study up here on the board, what is good, we ask? Love is. Darn it. You were looking for a laundry list, weren't you? Uh -huh. mm, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. Go down, to the, go down the street to the religious one, the religious church, the one with the big steeple and the dudes with the hats and stuff. They'll tell you until you're blue in the face. This is what you got to do. Make sure to pay penance. Make sure you do all this stuff here. That's good. It's not a laundry list, you understand? How do you fulfill the whole law? DJ said it, right, DJ? Love. Do you need any more commandments? <laughs> love. And true love is what we saw in Christ, who, by the way, was never romantic. Doesn't mean you can't have romantic love. Doesn't mean you can't love. But even the Bible says to the husbands, what? Love them romantically. <laughs> no. Pepe's nowhere in sight. Huh? Muppets in space? Anybody? We're not talking about romance. Even in marriage, you understand? If you're getting married because you're, you're romantically entwined, you get problems. You're basically setting yourself up for complete and utter failure and possible destitution. It's not about romance. Even the husbands are not called 
I mean, the wife's not even called. The wife says, respect the husband. The husband's love like Christ loved his bride. What is good, we ask? Love is. We're going to get to 1 John 4, 7 to 5, 4. We saw this last week as well. Now just reflect, put all this into all these moving parts and sort of some closure on this. We're on part 16 of this series and we've been diligent in our studies. And the one thing that keeps percolating up to the surface as the fundamental answer to our question is love. There's love. There's not a laundry list. I'm not going to try to, I'm not like some jackass pastor is who's going to give you a laundry list that you can post on your little corkboard at home and go, okay, I'm going to do this, 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 and this today. And that makes me good. You're in the wrong place. You get the wrong mindset. There's not a laundry list. You know what's right. You know what it means to love. And I'm not talking about that romantic garbage that you're, some of you are stuck in, that you need to exit from. One thing that keeps percolating up is this point on the board. What is good? Love is. Go to, um, oh, by the way, are you surprised by that? That there's no laundry list? That Pastor Ed didn't give you something, some takeaway on a little, you know, five by seven note card or on the back of a coin or some kind of little laminated thing? <laughs> you know, you want laminated bookmarks with little tabs on them? Huh? Is that what you want? I don't know what to tell you. I'm not, I'm not, look, I'm not here to give you a prescription to your life, okay? That's not my job. Your life is between you and the Lord. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. They may not be the same thing. That's what I do know. How you love, how you express God's love to somebody may be actually different than the way I express it. God knows it probably is, knowing my personality. It probably is. Great. Because here's the problem. I've, no, I've learned this from experience, especially as a pastor. If I give you a laundry list, even less, you know, hey, don't hang on these words, just food for thought. What do people do? Write them down. Next thing you know, they're trying to measure up to somebody else's laundry list. Then, you, you know what I'm saying? That's not what this is about. You want to know what's good? You to love others the way Christ loved others. That's what's good. What that means in your life, you figure it out. Stop being so lazy. Why does that word keep coming up? I don't know. So I'm not surprised by any of this. Go to 1 John 4, 7. 1 John 4, 7. So you want to know what's good? Love is good. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Amen? Amen? Thank you. What happened? You guys got stuck. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Oh, that's how it goes? Yeah, that's how it goes. 
It's one of the ways that you know that you're saved. All of a sudden, you're loving like Christ loved. You're born of God. And you start realizing, hey, wait a minute, I'm loving like Jesus. Not always, but I have this love that is so transcendent and so unselfish. Somewhere in me, I realize it's not pure and it's not going to be pure. But he gave me something when he saved me. It's one of the things that we can turn to. It's one of the ways I believe, probably among the first, that God the Holy Spirit tells us we're saved, convicts us that we're saved. We have a love now that's there that wasn't there before. And it's an unselfish love. Now, it may be small because you're just starting out. But maturity in the faith, that love just keeps growing and growing and growing. He says, Dig deeper, man. Throw some more seed. I'm going to keep proving it to you. I'm going to give you more and more faith. And the more faith you have, the more love, the more righteous you are, the more everything, the more like Christ you become, even in time. That's one of the ways I'm convinced of it from Scripture that the Spirit convicts us that you're saved. If you only have a selfish love for others, if that, that's like an oxymoron. If you only are a selfish lover, then the Bible says basically you cannot be saved. It's the antithesis of God. And that's not what God inserts in you. Again, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love, guess what? Didn't I just say this in so many words? This is how humbling Scripture is. It takes me three minutes, it takes Scripture one second. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Any questions? True love cannot help but what? Express itself. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. You know, God gave His only begotten Son. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God, is so, God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected or matured in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. I just spoke to this. You see, love, 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 and oh, the Spirit will tell you. The Spirit will point it out in your own soul. You see this love that wasn't here yesterday and it's here now? That's how you know you're saved. Because you know for a fact, you know darn well you don't love like that in your flesh. You lived 20 years or 30 years or 40, 50, 60 years with that other selfish kind of love. And you went through every kind of relationship, including the romantic ones. You know what you are not without me. And all of a sudden you have this unselfish love that is rooted in Christ himself, and you know it wasn't there, and God the Holy Spirit is convicting you of that thing, now you know you're saved. Not because you said some prayer, not because someone has affirmed your faith by walking this way or that way, or even getting down on your knees. There's a lot of Muslims that pray every day, a lot more than you do probably. Wrong God. It's not about any of that. It's about what God gives you. Last time I checked, God saves By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. 
We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. I've been having a lot of that conversation lately too. People who claim they're saved but yet don't confess Jesus as Lord, as Savior, but they did, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, doesn't count. Impossible! You either confess Christ or you don't. Otherwise, visit Hebrews 6 when you get a chance. 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in, the, in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should also love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the, ch the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What is good? Love is. How do you know you have it? Faith. Who gives all that stuff to you? God does. Who convicts you that it's resident in you? The Spirit. God the Spirit does. So, just to be silly for a moment, I mean, there we are. We have it. We've got our answer. Should we stop our current study just like right now and so we have since we have the answer to our question? Obviously not. I'm going to keep going for a little bit. Obviously not. You know why? Because this, this conversation will never end between you and the Spirit, by the way. He's going to keep convicting you of this thing. God's love is boundless, as is His Word. And as we just noted, true love must express itself. So, even knowing the answer before we finish the so-called organized pursuit of it doesn't make it or doesn't make one bit of a difference. So you got the answer. What is good? Love is. Should we just stop right there and go, okay, let's all go home. We don't need to even pick up our Bibles anymore. We don't need to study the Word anymore. No. Just because you know the answer doesn't mean anything. I guess in an infinitely grander way, opening our Bibles on this topic is no different than going down to the ice cream shop and ordering a cone of your favorite flavor. You've already experienced the so-called wonderful taste, right? I mean, it's your favorite for a reason. You've already tasted it. So why not just live on the memory of it? Why not just say, I got my, I got my favorite, I'm done. I'll never eat ice cream again. If you have access to the sweetest tasting meal in the universe, that is the very bread of life, why would you not dine on it every chance you get? 
Why would you not experience it every chance you get? It's not like you haven't experienced its, let's call it, its succulence before, right? But each time is amazing, fulfilling, indescribably nutritious to our souls. The same goes with God's love. It never gets old, nor does sowing the gospel seed. It never gets old. Sowing the good seed always reaps a harvest. And just for the sake of clarity, if nowhere else, at least in your own soul. I mean, how many of you can relate? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many can you relate to sowing the seed and it falls on the rocky soil? Or, or the bird comes and plucks it away, to use Matthew 13's parable of the soils. I mean, how many, I mean, everybody can. But you know what? You did as unto the Lord. You expressed love for others. And if it was done rightly, it was unselfish love. And like Jesus said, you're blessed. Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. It doesn't need to go any further. As far as you're concerned, it could just go out through you. And you're blessed. Now you know what love is. Because you're even loving the enemies of God. Sowing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to your enemies who mock you, who spit on you, who make fun of you, who call you a Jesus freak, who tell you to get off their property. For real. Who tell you, never bring this up again, or I'll never talk to you again. Those people. So be it. That's between them and the Lord. You have to find a place. You have to tap into that place of unselfish love that motivates you to keep on going. Like I said, 10, 12, 15, 16 hours a day a farmer will sow seed sometimes, right? Or at least farm the land. It's hard work. And sometimes the soil's not there. Even after you sow the seed. And nothing happens in that spot. But I can tell you this, my friends. Sowing the good seed always reaps a harvest, if nowhere else, at least in your own soul. That is what good is. And when we find something that is truly good, we are commanded by the source of it, our Creator, to enjoy it. You think that He doesn't want you to enjoy for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, right? He's the one who activated this whole thing. You think he doesn't want you to enjoy sowing seed? I mean, why would a farmer, let's face it, it's the funny, it's the paradox, right? Farmers work harder, arguably, than anybody else. Let's just, it doesn't mean, oh, no, shut up, right? <laughs> farmers work harder, on average, than anybody else. Can we agree to that? I mean, like, really hard, right? But if you went up to the farmer and said, what are you doing? You work like seven days a week. I love it. What? Most people nowadays, especially in America, they're looking for the least amount of hours with the most amount of money. Give me the, I don't want to work hardly at all. But I want to make what the farmer makes and more. That's my paradigm. And, and you translate that into the spiritual life. That's exactly what people come to Christ with. I don't want to give up my self-life. <laughs> just tell me what I need to do to get to heaven. And Satan says, oh, I got this false preacher over here who's going to give you a watered-down, cheapened, garbage gospel that just says, say this little prayer and 
you know, do a couple of laps around the church, high five some people, get excited. We'll play some rock music, and and we'll and that's Satan's work. Do you realize that? That's Satan's work. That's that's sowing a lie. Do you understand that? That's sowing a lie. That's not love. That's satanic. When something is truly good, we are commanded by the source of it, our Creator, to enjoy it. And to use the biblical description to abide in it. Go to John 15.1. John 15.1. It's hard work, my friends. That's the point. It's not always easy. But you, if you're saved, if you have that love somewhere in you, there's going to be at least a portion of you that loves it. Loves the idea of winning a soul. Loves the idea of additional brothers and sisters in Christ forever and ever. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be, made, may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Boom. Bam, right? As uh, Emma would say, bam. Whoosh. Right? Right? I mean, it's like, is that not what I've been teaching all morning? It's literally right there in writing. This is, these are the things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be made full. This is my command that you love one another. You want to live a good life? You want to live in love? Do you want to understand what true love is? Not that garbage that's peddled by the world, not that selfish stuff that your flesh clings to? He just told you how to do it. For the joy set before him, he did what? He endured the cross. For the joy set before you, you pick up your cross. This world's tough. You've got to go out there and sow some seed. And when you do it, if you're saved, you'll actually enjoy it. Your flesh is going to be dragging because you, you know how the partner is, your roommate. It's going to drag. It's going to tell you, oh, it's too cold. You know, it's too this, it's too that. You know, don't pick up the phone because it's easier to watch the game, whatever it is, you know. But Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. What if Jesus said, i got to watch the Patriots, can't make it to the cross today? I mean, work with me, right? 
So we ask, again, the point on the board, what is good? Love is. All right, let's dine some more on this before I close. We gotta do a communion service. And let us remember the Spirit's guidance from our previous lesson up here on the board, every aspect. To love like Jesus is to possess a love that permeates every aspect of life. It isn't just a passing emotional response. It is much, much bigger. It is on the same plane with eternal life. For God is both love, 1 John 4, 8, and eternal life, 1 John 5, 11, 12. In other words, this life we live is modeled after the life that has existed for all of eternity in heaven. That is eternal life up here on the board. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Who knows God? The one who knows Jesus. Jesus said, if you don't know me, you don't know the Father, right? If you don't have me, the gospel's about me, do you see? Not about doing this, not about some laundry list, about me. If you have me, you have the Father, and he knows you. And I taught you the distinction between knowing and knowing. You know, get away from me, I never knew you. So that's a verse that requires, I believe, the verse on the board, it requires a bit of maturity to understand completely. And even the most mature person on earth doesn't fully comprehend it. I mean, comprehend it, how could they? But you know who does? You know who does understand that verse right there? Bill Johnson. Bill is in heaven right now, living the good life. And that was an, intention, an intentional pun, by the way. The good life. What is good? He's experiencing pure love. That's the good life. You know what he's doing? He's worshiping our Lord. All the time. Why? Because that's what love does. If heaven's the epitome, the ultimate sanctification... What do you think we're being sanctified to do right now? That's the end goal. That's the purified goal. That's the ultimate sanctified goal. What do you think he's trying to do right now? He's saying, you want the good life? You can enjoy some of that right now. So drop all the selfish kind of love. Love the way Jesus loved. And you'll get a taste of what someone like Bill is enjoying all the time now. Every person in heaven is now abiding in the gospel reality in the purest sense. And, you know, I was thinking about it. Do you, you know, what's, what's a taste of heaven right now? How about this? How about Philippians 4, 7? For example, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How about that? Some, anybody here have increased peace over the last couple of years even? Me, definitely. Wow, Scott, me and you, buddy. And even Scott was like this. I'm like, geez, it's only halfway there. Just keep working, bud. Just hang in there. <laughs> right? I mean, everybody's laughing because you know exactly what I'm saying. Everybody's laughing because you really do have more peace now than you've ever had. How do I know? Because you tell me. That's the only way I know. That's a slice of heaven. I mean, who's at peace when they're living for themselves? Nobody. Nobody. You're at peace when you live for others because you know 
That's what God the Holy Spirit convicts you of. You want to be miserable? Stop living for yourself. I'm serious. Those are my greatest days of absolute horror and misery. I get off track. It happens, I know. I'm, I'm way up here. I mean, it's hard to believe. Right? My most miserable days, I'm living for myself. And he stops me and says, you're living for yourself. That's why you're a miserable crank. Get, get, out, of, get, get out of your own head. Get out, get out of your own way. You're living for yourself. You forgot why you're there. You know, and then I'll you know, throw up some protest. Like, they don't care. They're so ungrateful. And he goes like this. The angel comes down starts playing the violin. You want to, honestly, you want to, you want to lose your peace? Start living for yourself. You want to gain peace? You want to understand what true love is? Live for others. All right. I swear I'm going to end you. The question again is what is good? Here's some wisdom. When we find the truth, then we find the definition for good. What do we find? Love. What's our motivation? Proverbs 4, 7, the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom and with all you require and get understanding and so forth and so on. So that's the end, really, of part 16. And that finished up, this was our working framework, if you remember, of general and special revelation. Go quickly to Psalm 19, 1. Psalm 19, 1, let's just read it all the way through just to put this principle to bed or this point on the board to bed because this was sort of our launching pad it it's funny because god the holy spirit could use just about any construct and we would have ended up with the same answer we could have sliced it into the four categories of blah and you know what we would have ended up in the same place with the same answer so don't think this was the only way to skin the cat so to speak Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Again, that's the general revelation. And then verse 7 and forward is special revelation, which reads, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of, of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So that closes out the point on the board. That was the good work. And then I'll just 
wrap this up with two principles, and they're not necessarily true. They're just a couple of conclusions. I've already stated them for the most part, but they're just maybe a little bit more concise, maybe just a little bit more food for thought before we go into uh, the Lord's Supper. Again, there were two questions in our title series, if you remember. What is good and who gets to define it? So let me at least give you this for what is good. To love like Christ does. What, to love like Christ does. That is what is good. I could just say to love like Christ, but to love like Christ does. Because there's an activity there, too. To love like Christ does. That's good. That's what we learned. No laundry list. No do these five things or these 28 things or this blah, blah, blah. There's no doctrine of doing good on earth while you're on earth to satisfy God type thing. It's love like Christ loves. To abide in a love that cannot help but express itself and to be honest about those who receive it and those who don't. Remember, love is not this gushy, soft ice cream thing. It can be. You know, nothing like a hot summer day and you get a nice cone of twist with jimmies. But sometimes it's a good swift kick in the you-know-what. That's love. Telling somebody that they're wretched, in need of a Savior, in need of repentance, that's not a that's not an ice cream cone with jimmies on top. That's like, dude, you just handed me a pile of turd. Yeah, I know, because that's what you are. Matter of fact, you're even worse. You're a menstrual rag. I didn't say that. That's the Bible. That's how much your life is worth. That's still love, though. Do you understand? That's still love. So don't get all gushy. But don't become a tyrant. Love like Christ did. Who was called what? The lion and the what? The lamb. Amen? That's what's good. To love like Christ. Don't become unbalanced. Who gets to define it? Obviously, God does. Of course, God does. His fingerprints are all over his creation. That was general revelation. And through the various special revelations of himself, including his manifestation as Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We have the very words of Jesus Christ, who was God, who defined what was good. Any questions? No. What's good? To love like Christ. Who gets to define it? God does. Are you satisfied with our good work here, my friends? I am. You're like, man, you could have given us that like 15 parts ago. <laughs> Blame the Spirit. Try arm wrestling with him on that one. You're going to lose. That's the beauty, right? It's the process. The Word of God, Hebrews 4.12, right? It's alive and powerful. It's awesome. All we got to do is just like swim in it and love. Don't forget to love. No matter what you're doing, always, don't forget to love like Christ. Unselfish love, not selfish love. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right, gentlemen, get the uh, communion service elements ready.
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the person of our Lord. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time of fellowship with you, for this amazing time to celebrate the truth about that which is good, that in the end it's about loving the way our Lord loves, the way you have loved us first. Father, thank you for making it so very clear to us the distinctions between the way the world loves and even our own fleshes and that which was imparted to us at salvation. Father, thank you for granting us the time through your patience to experience said love as you continue to fill our vats and to continue to fill our aprons with the gospel seed so that we might continue to sow it and be blessed all the while. What an amazing truth that is. What a transcendent reality is to live in the gospel. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. We just ask for practical blessings as we leave here in our vehicles on our way back to our lives, lives that you've ordained. We just ask for traveling mercies as we do so. and We just ask for your grace and your mercy in sowing this seed amongst those in the world that need it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.